We ask that you would hear this morning's scripture reading. We're going to read Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or whence shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and you have shown us how we might live and act and worship you through your word. And Lord, we pray that as we spend some time in the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum, that you would reveal yourself to us by your word, that we might see in it your Son, Jesus Christ. We may see in it the thread of your plan of redemption that is woven throughout all of history. Lord, we pray for the various ministries that are starting up today and this week and the weeks to come, that these things would be done to glorify you and would be used by your Holy Spirit to glorify you. Thank you for each one who is leading one of these ministries or participating in them. And we just ask that you would draw people together, all surrounded around your word. God, I pray for those who are joining with us online those who could not make it because they're traveling or because they're sick or because they're otherwise prevented from joining us, we ask that you would be with them, that you would bring them healing, bring them home to us, and that they might gather together again with us in person to worship you. 
And Lord, for those who have chosen to join with us online just because it is more convenient, Lord, I ask that you would bring them back to join with us. That you would help us to see the reason why you have told us to gather in person. You have told us to gather as one people, that we might strengthen and encourage one another, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray for healing for those among us who are suffering from health difficulties. Lord, you know, and many of us do not even speak up about our own health issues, Lord, but you know. And we ask that your work would be working on them, that they might be put back together as you have designed them. You are the one who formed us in our mother's womb. You know us inside and out, every hair on our head, every cell in our bodies. You know us far better than any doctor or anyone else ever could. We ask that you would cause our bodies to work together rightly and perfectly. And Lord, in the meantime, we ask that you would give us the strength to carry on. That you would help us find our strength in you to persevere even when things are difficult. And that we would not flee from you. That we would worship you even when it is difficult, even when it is inconvenient. That our eyes would always be turning towards your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I have to ask, just a brief show of hands, how many people here have recently read the book of Jonah? A few of us who are actively involved in preparing stuff for Jonah, but it's not a book that many of us come back to on a very regular basis. I think in the scope of Scripture, it is good that we are familiar with the big stories. Jonah and the whale, the birth of Jesus, Daniel in the lion's den, Noah's ark and the flood. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, David and Goliath, Tower of Babel, Samson and Delilah. I could go on, but these are the stories that, that make the children's Bibles. The stories that are woven throughout and stamped on our psyche. They have captured the hearts and minds of the children who have grown up in church and those of us who have spent time in the Word they immediately evoke in our hearts and minds images and memories. I think the danger with these big passages is that if we allow them to, sometimes they can overshadow the surrounding stories and passages in the Word. I think a lot of us haven't read Jonah recently, not just because there's plenty of other good passages of Scripture, but also because, well, I know the story of Jonah and the whale. He gets eaten by a fish, he gets spit out by the fish, he goes to Nineveh, Nineveh repents. We know that story. So we don't spend a whole lot of time studying that story. But we miss out when we don't study those stories. We know that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that includes the smaller part of the stories. Maybe smaller isn't the right word because, for instance, in the book of Jonah, 
Jonah and the whale takes up only the first two chapters of Jonah. The second two chapters have moved on from anything to do with a fish. So maybe we'll call them the less iconic passages, the ones that don't jump off the page quite so clearly. They hold equal weight to the ones that we know and love and remember. That's one of the benefits of preaching through entire books of Scripture, through the entire counsel of the Word of God, is we don't miss out on the, the little passages. We get more than just the highlight reel. I was blessed last night to go and spend some time having dinner with some of the elders of the church and their wives, and we talked a little bit about sports, and we made the rule there was no kind of shop talk while we were there. But even talking about sports, there's some major baseball fans in amongst the uh, elders' council, Dick and Lorna. And I played baseball my whole life. I love baseball. But I cannot for the life of me watch baseball because I can watch all of the things I want to watch about baseball in about 15 minutes, and then the other several hours are whatever they are. But that highlight reel is sometimes the way we treat these passages of Scripture that we, we know the story. We look at the highlights, we hit the highlights, and we move on. But as we take our time in the next few months, Lord willing, the books of Jonah and kind of a sequel in the book of Nahum will take us to Christmas. And as we take our time piecing through the books of Jonah and Nahum, we'll do more than hit the highlight reels. We will get every piece and we will suck every scrap of meat that we can off of these bones. We're starting this series and Jonah and Nahum are very different. Jonah, they're both prophetic books, but Jonah doesn't read like your typical prophetic book. It's more like a narrative, and that's because the story of Jonah isn't so much focused on the message that Jonah brings to Nineveh. It's more focused on the messenger and his reaction. Nahum, on the other hand, is your straight-up, typical prophetic oracle concerning the city of Nineveh. I'm going to leave the details of Nahum for another day, but this morning I hope you'll allow me to set the stage a little bit regarding the book of Jonah. So at this point, it's the 8th century B.C. The book of 2 Kings tells us that Jonah lived during the reign of King Jeroboam II, which places him somewhere in the 790s to 750s B.C., about 200 years or so earlier, the unified Israel that we've seen throughout much of the Old Testament after the reign of King Solomon have split into a northern kingdom, which continues to be called Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. It's important because Jonah, when he's identified in 2 Kings, is kind of outed as being a northerner. Overall, throughout Scripture, we kind of get this sense that Judah, the southern kingdom, remains a little bit more faithful to the commandments of Yahweh. Northern kingdom did not have a great track record right from the very get-go. 
So people hearing this message from Jonah from the very get-go would likely have kind of turned their noses up at this northern prophet. Even though he was a prophet of God, he was a northerner. And during the time of Jonah, there was a particular nation that was a thorn in the side of basically every other nation in the known world, and that was the kingdom of Assyria. The Assyrians were a violent and warlike people. They expanded and subjugated basically all of the known world, and they were known to be brutal about how they did it. They would pile bodies in the streets and let everyone know who it was who has captured them and conquered them and make it very clear that they were now the new rulers and do so incredibly violently. And core to the Assyrian Empire was the great city of Nineveh. A capital city of an empire was a crown jewel to them. It was core to who they were as a people. And you would see much of what a, what a nation was like by looking at their capital city. And that is where we run into the commissioning of Jonah. From Jonah 1, 1 to 3, which will be our passage this morning. Would you read that with me? Jonah 1, 1 to 3. And now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. There are certain opening phrases in literature. They're often called stock phrases because right from the get-go, they signpost what you're in for. If I start with once upon a time, you know what you're about to get. You're about to get a fairy tale. If I start with many years ago in a faraway land, Right away you get this, oh, we're in for a good adventure, off somewhere far off. If I start with, the purpose of this study is to, you know you're in for probably a research paper or something, trying to communicate and convince with evidence. Those phrases prepare the audiences for what's in store, what's coming. And the phrase, now the word of the Lord came to Whoever. That is probably our clearest example in Scripture of this kind of signpost phrase. That was the phrase in the Old Testament to perk up the ears of the audience. That was Yahweh himself speaking to and through his prophet. It was straight from the mouth of God, so you would better listen. And if you'll look through the Old Testament, you'll find that phrase, now the word of the Lord came to you'll find that crop up over a hundred times in the Old Testament. And that's how our book starts. Our audience immediately, okay, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, northern, son of Amittai. And then their loyalties twist right away and go, oh, the word of the Lord came to, okay, we're excited, and it came to Jonah. 
I mentioned 2 Kings 14 a few times already, and it's the only other place where we have some corroborating evidence for Jonah as a historical prophet, because some have just dismissed the story of Jonah as fiction, because it is it's pretty fantastic. But I do not believe it to be a work of fiction. I don't believe it's just a good parable or story to teach someone. I believe it to be truth and a true historical story. And 2 Kings 14 is one where we hear more about this Jonah. 2 Kings 14, starting in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of King Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Libo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer put Jonah, placed him squarely in the northern kingdom of Israel. That unfaithful lot who followed King Jeroboam rather than Solomon's son, the anointed king, or King Rehoboam. Honestly, neither group, north or south, did a terribly good job following the commands of the Lord. But the perception was of Judah, the southern kingdom, being the superior one in regards to faithfulness. So Jonah, being from the northern kingdom, would not likely have been a particularly welcome addition to the list of God's prophets for most. But then, it's not only a northerner who is chosen. The northerner is then chosen to go to a people who is even worse. Not to announce a woe that you shall be destroyed, but to give them a chance to turn and avoid destruction. Jonah is told, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. I don't think that hits quite the same for us today because, I mean, we have our basic rivalries, when Team Canada plays Team USA, we know who to cheer for. And we like to throw jabs at our southern neighbors. But here in Canada, we don't have that same kind of level of issue with most countries. We're, we're nice people. We don't try to have issues with many people. But a comparable today might be to go to a pastor in a bombed-out region of Ukraine and say, God is going to completely wipe Moscow off of the face of the earth. Go and warn them. Go and warn them to turn from their wicked ways and I will save Moscow. Imagine what that might be like as someone from the Ukraine. There's not a whole lot of love lost there. These are a people who are at odds with one another. They're as likely to kill one another as talk to each other, given the chance. And Jonah is sent to their capital city. 
Jonah, the hated northerner, is sent even further north to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. You'll see here a theme in the book of Jonah, if you pay attention, this idea of racial superiority. Judah over Israel, Israel over Assyria. And if you listen even closer, you might hear the echo of the Lord's word to Moses in Exodus 33. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. No matter what group you hail from, whether then or now, God sets the rules as to whom he will show mercy, not us. And when it comes down to racial superiority, today we have pretty clear guidance that God's people now includes every tribe, every tongue, every nation, so there's no room for that anywhere in God's church. But back to Jonah. He is commanded, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I'm thinking if this is being read to an audience, especially of Southerners, the reaction would likely be the, well, here we go again. Northerners are commanded to do something, and they do the opposite. But this juxtaposition here between the command of Jonah is so clear. Jonah is told, arise and go. Jonah's response, Jonah rose, and he fled. Exactly the opposite. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So we don't know where Jonah is at this point in his story. Is he still in Gathepher? Is he somewhere else? We don't know. But regardless of where in kind of Israel he is, Nineveh is somewhere to the northeast on the map. Where does Jonah go? He goes to Joppa on the Mediterranean Sea, and he flees to Tarshish. We don't know exactly where Tarshish was. There's some great scholarship on that, but all of the scholarship points that it is due west of Israel. The best guess is it was likely on the southernmost tip of Spain in the Mediterranean Sea. And that is the edge of the world as far as these people are concerned. But the exact location doesn't matter here. Jonah's told, arise and go northeast, and Jonah rises and goes due west, as far as he can, exactly in the opposite direction from his call. If you were to look at these three verses this morning with a discerning eye going, what is our author trying to get at here? There should be something that kind of signposts the crux of these three verses. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This from the presence of the Lord, repetition is key in interpreting Scripture. If you're seeing something repeated, particularly verbatim, these are the exact same words repeated in a couple sentences here. 
chances are the author's trying to make a point about something, hoping that this will jump off the page. So what can we glean from Jonah's flight from the presence of the Lord? For us, it makes no sense. We are left bewildered. God speaks to you and sends you, and you choose to run. Jonah finds a ship, pays the fare, goes down into it, and runs away from the presence of the Lord as far as he can in the opposite direction. Every churchgoer knows that you can't flee from God. The omniscience and omnipresence of God is Christianity 101. God knows everything. He is everywhere. How can you flee from a God who knows everything and is everywhere? You can't. But then placed in the day of Jonah, maybe it makes a little more sense as opposed to an omnipresent God overall, much of the world at the time would have seen Jonah's God like their own God, a local deity, a God of a specific people in a specific place. Jonah's God was the God of Israel, so maybe he just sticks to Israel. Maybe he just stays there, and if you leave Israel, you go into the realm of another God, the God of whatever ocean it might be or whatever country you might go to. If Jonah had allowed that thinking to infiltrate his heart and mind, maybe the idea of fleeing from God as kind of exiting his home zone might not seem so crazy. Yahweh was the God of the Israelites, and maybe just by running to Tarshish, the equivalent of the edge of the world, he could escape this call that God has placed on him. But at the same time, Jonah was a prophet of the Lord a person of Israel, and we can reasonably assume he was fairly familiar with much of the Old Testament scriptures as they would have existed. Not all of it had been written at this point, but much of the Psalms certainly had. Earlier I read Psalm 139. The very beginning of the Psalm 139, it's identified as a Psalm of David. That means that Psalm 139 had existed for some 300 or so years at this point. When Jonah goes to run, this one was well, clear, and available. And as Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, I cannot help but see him with this echoing in the back of his mind, the words of David in verses 7 to 12 of Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, sounds a lot like Jonah, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So Jonah thinks, well, maybe I can flee from God. But all the while echoing in the back of the, his head, he knows he can't. I think in a lot of ways, we're not so different from Jonah a lot of days. Jonah, I'm sure, had some concept of God's direction in his life prior to this call this fateful call to Nineveh. But his perception of what God wanted for him obviously did not include 
a trip to the Assyrian capital. How many of us have had preconceived notions of God's direction for our lives only to have them derailed when God gives us a call? Maybe it was on a macro scale, a big scale like Jonah's. You have this one plan from your life and then God makes it clear he wants you to go into ministry or to move somewhere else and just totally uproot your life. Maybe you have this major life opportunity comes up and God says, but I want you here. Maybe we haven't experienced a kind of macro about face like that from the will of the Lord, but all of God's people have experienced this on a micro level. Uncomfortable call to evangelize a stranger. Very rarely do we leave our house in the morning going, I'm probably going to have to tell someone about Jesus today who has never heard the gospel. Maybe a call to lay down personal freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Maybe it's just sacrificing of your time to serve in the church. You have a plan for your week and then Tony sends out an email or someone comes to you and says the church really needs help with whatever. We have plans. We have dreams for the direction that we want our life to go, but all of a sudden, sometimes God takes our plans in a different direction. We have these plans, and yet Jesus in Matthew 16 says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is a sermon that Jonah could have used. Saved himself a lot of trouble. But going to Assyria, a rival nation and an incredibly violent and warlike rival nation, I'm sure Jonah had all manner of legitimate safety concerns. And it's not like he was going to Nineveh with a peaceable message. He wasn't being sent to Nineveh. Good job. Keep up the good work. He was being sent to a rival, violent, warlike capital with a message of, you are wrong, and you are going to get wiped off the face of the earth by my God if you do not change. Not exactly the kind of message that garners all kind of favor in this dangerous city. So he has some legitimate concerns. His rational brain would have been going, mm -mm, this is not a good idea. And Jonah goes, you know what? You're right. I don't think it's a good idea, so I'm going the other way. Born out of Jonah's reasoning, whether it was just self-preservation, a deluded sense of racial superiority. Those Assyrians don't deserve that message, so I'm going to go. We'll be getting to a lot more of that later in Jonah. Or maybe it was simply outright rebellion built in there. God says, go, and I say, nope, go in the other way. Jonah plays the greatest trick on himself that a person can ever play. He convinced himself that he knew better. If any of you have 
ever raised children, you know that your children know everything, all things. And whatever plan you have, they know better. The amount of times that a parent goes, well, why don't you do this? And the kid goes, well, or, but. And then they have this wonderful plan for their life that doesn't include doing whatever you have told them to do. That convince, that issue of thinking that we know better is quite literally the oldest trick in the book. Adam and Eve were convinced that although God had given them a commandment, that it was in their best interest to disobey that commandment. That somehow they would be able to disobey the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God who created them and that they walked with in the garden, that they could say, I know you said don't touch this tree, don't eat from this tree, but we're going to eat from this tree because... That's the right call. They figured they could come out in the positive. Jonah thought he knew better than God and that he could somehow flee to somewhere that God couldn't find him, that he could improve his life, his chances, by going a different way. All the while aware deep in his soul, as all of us are, that there is no way that this can be true. I remember when I was first dating Sherry, we went through, went down to Saskatchewan and went for a hike through the snowy fields of Saskatchewan, trying to see some of the local scenery. I know that doesn't sound like Saskatchewan local scenery, but we were walking through these fields, through the snow, and Sherry's two youngest biological siblings, Liam and Faith, they were something like 11 and 13 at the time, they had decided that they were going to throw me in the snow. So I'm 20-ish. This 11- and 13-year-old kids are like, we're going to throw him in the snow. And they would drop back a few yards, back away from Sherry and I as we walk, and then they'd whisper their little plans. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And I could hear them making their plans back there. And then you would hear the yell, and they would come charging, and both of them would just get chucked in opposing snowbanks, and we'd keep walking. And they had these plans, and I'm sure if they would have stopped and reasoned things out, they would have said, this guy has probably 100 pounds on both of us combined, so we're probably not going to succeed at throwing him in a snowbank. Especially after the first two or three times they'd been thrown in the snow. They probably would have been reason, able to reason out, okay, this is not going to work. But they kept on trying. It was adorable, and it's a very fond memory today. But it reveals this human tendency to try and fool ourselves, that somehow we're going to be able to do the impossible. Sometimes that persuasion can be a good thing. It has driven innovation and industry throughout the human world for all time. We're going to keep trying until we find something that works. But when it comes to our relationship with God, it is disastrous. When it comes to our relationship with God and we say we're going to do what God has said can't be done or shouldn't be done, 
It does not end well ever. We convince ourselves that by some means we can overcome God's will or change God's mind that maybe, I know God said we can't do this, but maybe he'll kind of fall in line when he sees how good it turns out. We can rewrite his plan to our liking. Then when that doesn't work, we continue to buck God's plans and double down, running because we don't like his call. While you or I may not have the prophetic relationship with God that Jonah had, where we can say that mystically the word of the Lord came to us. We do have the word of the Lord clearly laid out for us. The word of the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of the Lord Jesus Christ gave us his word And those scriptures are the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. It is the reason why we gather together today, because we have the Word. So when we see the Word of the Lord came to Jonah, we go, man, wouldn't it be nice if the Word of the Lord came to Josh and could tell me? Word of the Lord came to Josh. God has given us His Word, and we can find His Word within the pages of Scripture. So I encourage you to avoid that age-old mistake of thinking you know better than God and then running from Him when it doesn't work out. God's Word has come to us and given us instructions, and we shake our heads at poor Jonah, hearing directly from God and proceeding to disobey it. We know how that turns out. We go, how could you be so dumb? But how often do we hear the words of Scripture and directly disobey them? We are making the same willfully disobedient choice that Jonah made, that we shake our head and go, how could he be so dumb? We do the same thing. I love the little details in our passage. Jonah went down to Joppa, he found a ship, and he paid the fare. This is not a spur-of-the-moment leap in the wrong direction. God says, go left, and Jonah turns right. God says, go left, and Jonah works out a plan. Planned, okay, where, where can I go? Tarshish is the farthest I can think of, so I'm going to Tarshish. How do I get to Tarshish? Joppa's a port city. I can go and hire a ship there. Find a ship that will go. In the Old Testament days, travel wasn't quite as quick as it is today, so he does the trip down to Joppa from wherever he was, finds this ship, and works out a price and pays the man. Then he gets on the ship and off he goes. We do the same thing. We actively set in motion plans that we have come up with that are contrary to the commandments of our God and we pursue those plans right to the end. And this can be big or small. Countless brothers and sisters throughout Christian history, both married and unmarried, have been caught up in sinful extramarital affairs, relationships that require time and planning and effort to pursue and maybe to keep secret and In the prevalence of the digital age, this is even easier where this pursuit is 
clicks on a screen and messages on a device, but we set in motion these plans and pursue these relationships that we know are against the commandments of Scripture. Others have actively pursued tactics to keep their financial assets and incomes hidden from the government and the oversight that the government has been given by God. How many people have their, the government doesn't know about this money that they pocket? Fill in the blank. Pick your poison. We have all manner of opportunities to pursue the wrong thing. And when we see those opportunities, and oftentimes they look so sweet to us and so appealing to us, we make plans how to do it. We work it out and go. And we'll even go so far as to go, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to find some way, somewhere in here, a loophole that I can make it feel at least okay. I know this is wrong, but I... I'm sure I can find something in here that I can twist a little bit to at least ease my conscience about it. But the word of the Lord, the same word that spoke to Jonah, discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. His eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no hiding from God. God sees the mental and spiritual gymnastics we do to make our plans okay, and he sees every step and every plan that we make that is against him. If you examine your own heart and your own life, I'm sure if I examine my own heart and my own life, we need to be very aware of areas where we are tempted to run from God. And if you find that you have been running from God, trying to hide from him in whatever crack or crevice or edge of the earth that you have run to, know that it is never too late so long as you draw breath. The Apostle Paul was actively murdering Christians when the Word made flesh showed up and knocked him off his horse. And he became one of the writers of Scripture, one of the greatest examples of the faith that we can imagine. Jonah ran the opposite direction, and we all know the end of the story. He eventually goes to Nineveh, but we'll get there. All of us at one point were objects of God's wrath, sinners who had fallen short of God's glorious purpose. But by the grace that God supplies, he begins to correct our aim. He sanctifies us and draws us and our lives into line with his commandments with the example of his son, Jesus. But before he does that, he saves us. He replaces a stony heart that is completely hardened against anything of God. He takes that heart out and replaces it with a heart of flesh, a heart that can even begin down that road. A heart that is soft enough to hear God's word, to hear the word of the Lord and to respond to it. God stops us in our tracks and turns us onto the path that leads to eternal life. We will never attain righteousness and holiness and perfection on our own. We cannot do that. 
And in this life, we will struggle and do battle with sin every day until the day we are called home. Our righteousness is found in Jesus. Just as our sin was placed upon him on the cross, we have received his righteousness if we have made him the Lord of our life, if we have been saved. Jonah learned all too quickly the consequences of running from God. We're going to get there, so I'm not going to steal from future messages as much as I want to. But even just from the evidence that we've heard so far, the scriptures we've read this morning, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to get an idea of where Jonah's poor choices are leading. To run from the Lord is to run from all things good. Scripture tells us that all good things come from the Lord. So if you're running from him, you're running from the only good things that this world has to offer. Anything else is just a pale replacement. So receive the word of the Lord, the one through whom all things have been made, Jesus Christ. Receive and obey his word, the scriptures, rather than fleeing from God. Do not flee from the presence of the one that gives all good things. Instead, bask in the fact that the God of the universe, the good God of the universe, has for some reason or another known only to him, seen fit to reveal himself to a sinner like me, a sinner like each of us were. He has seen fit to reveal his will to us in Scripture. Don't flee from God. It doesn't work. Run to him, and you will find eternal life. I ask that the worship team would come to lead us in a closing song. Once they've come, I'll ask that you join with me in prayer. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would be at work in your people this morning. Make clear by your Holy Spirit the areas in our life where we have been running from you. Frustrate the plans that we have made to flee from you. And draw us back to yourself. Reveal to us how futile it is to try and fight against and kick against the goads of your commandments. And don't let us do it just because it is something that we don't want to do what you've commanded. Let us also recognize that to fight against you is to run away from all of the good things that this life has to offer. You are the only right and good choice. Your commandments and your sovereign direction is the only good choice. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see the value 
Help us to see the goodness of your plan. And Lord, even when we don't see the value, even when we can't see the good of your plan, help us to recognize that you are good. In spite of whatever we think of your plan, you are good. And help us to trust you even when we can't see it. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the example that we have been given in Jonah. And we pray that as we study this account, that you would make clear to us that which you would teach us in your word. Thank you for each brother and sister who is here. Thank you for each one who is joining with us online. And we thank you so much that we are never beyond the reach of your Holy Spirit. That as long as we draw breath, you are still capable of working in us the change that leads to salvation. That you are able to take our stony hearts and make them new. And Lord, if there are any who are hardened to you here this morning or listening to this online, we ask in your sovereign will that you would help them to see the light. That you would work in their hearts salvation. That they would receive that gift from you and they would follow you and turn from their own plans and pursue you wholeheartedly. God, you are good. And your mercy endures forever. Be with us this morning and apply this word to our hearts. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.